Hi. It's good to be with you tonight. I first want to start by saying that there's a couple pages of acknowledgments at the beginning of the book. And Jody told me that a woman had come up with the name of the book. I liked it. I never thought to ask him who the woman was. The woman was Zebra Baker. <laughs> and it's such an unprepossessing name. And Zebra is unprepossessing. And so it's a great joy to me to have had Zebra name the book and to be uh, among people that Mary Lee and I love very, very much. And uh, I have a bit of submission syndrome when it comes to speaking at conferences. (laughs) It's not my favorite thing anymore. My favorite thing is, you know, but anyhow, I was supposed to write pastors reformed, you know, church reformed, elders reformed, pastors reformed, but I've gotten to the point that I don't like pastors generally. And what I do like is Mary Lee. And so I just thought, I'm going to write about marriage. And Mary Lee gave me a lot of help. And so Mary Lee and I have fought over these talks. And so we hope that you're the beneficiaries of our fights. All right? Make sure you get a copy of the book, because, for instance, there's one chapter I want you as men, I'm going to give to you tomorrow. I want you to read it to your wife after I give you that chapter. Tonight, it's not a chapter from the book. And so let me begin by saying that Mary Mary Lee and I are very thankful to have you here tonight. Thank you for coming. It's a privilege for us to love you and to be loved by you and for you to be willing to, 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 to let us feed you. I mean, it really is quite kind of you to let us do our work. And so please don't resent us. By the way, did you notice what the Landmark Center's website said about the suitability of this grand hall for weddings? Did any of you notice what it said? You did, actually. Yeah, yeah. So here's what it says. It says, for weddings, the Grand Hall offers the look and feel of a church without the restrictions. (laughs) And so tonight, I hope that I can give you all the restrictions. (laughs) Isn't that funny? Let's start by dropping back and taking a look at the big picture. Sure, there are marital crises in our relationships right now that we want a solution for. But if we don't have it fixed in our minds what marriage itself is and why God made it that way, we'll not really fix our marriage. Instead, we will just switch from this problem to that problem. We'll just exchange problems one for another. Without keeping God's design firmly in mind, what we consider to be the solution we need to hear today will harm other things and multiply our marital problems. So look at this as sort of a very large double date all right, but also a very large counseling session. 
I'm really not interested, Mary Lee and I are not interested in hearing your self-diagnosis. And I know that sounds a little bit scandalous because you might think it means that we don't care about you. But I find, we find that in counseling couples who are married, they're not very good at diagnosing their problems. And so trust us as we use a scalpel on you that it probably is more helpful than you feel it is when you first hear it, okay? And so as I said, let's drop back and take a look at the big picture and let's do so under four headings. So tonight we're gonna have four headings. Number one, God made the two one. Or another way of saying it is God made the two one. Number two, God made woman for man. Number three, God saw it was not good for man to be alone. And number four, God made children his blessing to man and wife. Now right there, you're probably thinking like David engaged me recently and said, don't ever say man and wife. That's so um, patronizing. It should be man and woman or husband and wife. It shouldn't be man and wife. And I'm saying, no, 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 man and wife. In other words, let's have our language be obnoxious because scripture's obnoxious. And so God made children his blessing to man and wife. Now first, let us examine the fundamental truth of marriage that it is God who made Adam and Eve one. Husband and wife, it is your heavenly father who made the two of you one. Now that sounds unextraordinary, right? It just sounds sort of boring. It is God who made you up, 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 up. It is God who made the two of you one. Now, when I was 20 or so, a friend told me that Chicago Northwestern Railroad was hiring, all right? And he was going to apply. Should I move this up or down? Is that good? We'll see, thanks. He was going to apply. Now, my grandfather on my dad's side had worked for Penn Central Railroad in Pennsylvania, and my grandfather on my mother's side had worked at Republic Steel Mill. And so I thought I might want to get in touch with my deep roots. And so I decided that I'd go with him and I'd apply for a job on the railroad. So the two of us drove into CNNW's offices in Chicago, in the city, and we took the written tests first. It was a large room of 50 to 100 men, no women, sitting crammed into little school desks, you know, with a little arm there. After the tests were scored, the two of us were still in. And so then we were sent over to get physicals. And it wasn't until the very last thing that was done, the very end of the physical, that I got the boot. They gave me a test for colorblindness, and I got 14 out of 16 circles of dots wrong. (laughs) They told me I couldn't work as a switchman or as a brakeman. I could not have a moving position. Well, by now I had a day invested in applying, and so I asked if 
there were any jobs open to the colorblind. They weren't sure, but thought maybe there might be a job open at their proviso yard repairing freight cars. Did I want them to check? And I said, yes, please. Then I sat and waited. I don't remember how long it was, but in time they came back and they said a job was open as a brake repairman or a car knocker. And I could have it if I wanted. And I said, yes, I wanted the job. And so my friend and I drove back out to our house in Glen Ellen that we were renting, and we both went to work for Chicago Northwestern Railroad. A few days later was our first day of work. He went west to West Chicago, where there was a small rail yard, and I went east to the huge Proviso Yard just south of O'Hare. If you ever drive to O'Hare, you'll see it. It's, there's a weird hotel that's tall, and it sits in the middle of no man's land, and the Proviso Yard is all around that hotel. Later that day, we got home and we compared notes. I'd been trained to fix the air brakes on freight cars. Meanwhile, he'd had a different kind of training. His training began with all the new guys standing in a line next to a track and watching two boxcars roll toward each other about one mile an hour with their couplers open and a large bag of sand attached inside the coupler's jaws. You all with me? They had been told they should never walk between two cars that were uncoupled. And this demonstration was to explain why. And so the boxcars were just moving on their own very slowly. They'd been started toward each other, and then they were allowed to just roll. No locomotive was pushing either of them. And so there the newbies stood and came together very slowly and coupled. And those couplers were not bothered by the sandbags. They coupled, okay? And this, of course, explained to them that their bodies would be no obstacle to the coupling of two couplers. And if you don't know anything about trains, you don't know that often when you're putting a train together, you can be completely unaware of what's going on, walk between couplers, and bam! It's just that quick. And the reason is that it's very fast when the slack is being taken out or when they're being pulled. And the sills in sight. So in other words, you can think you're totally safe. There's no engine around. There's a big space. And bam! And you're coupled. And you're dead. Okay? Now, there are a number of ways that the couplers of two railroad freight cars coupling together is a good metaphor for marriage. Marriage is the coupling together of one man and one woman for life, and it, too, is a life and death matter. To the husband, to the wife, and to the children. Once the pin in each coupler has fallen, so they come together, and when they come together, there's a huge steel pin that sits high. The minute they couple, that pin falls through the hole on each coupler and locks them together, okay? Once that pin on each coupler has fallen, it's locked. 
Now, that's not real interesting, you know. But here's something that's very interesting. If you want to uncouple those two cars, what do you have to do? And you say, well, just lift up the coupler lever. You know, it goes out to the side of the car and you just lift it. I say, oh, yeah, have you ever done it? Well, listen, it's very hard to lift the pin on a coupler. It's hard to uncouple a train. If you want to stop a train, the much better way to do it is to uncouple the brake hoses. Because the minute the brake hoses are uncoupled, the train will stop because it loses pressure and automatically all the brakes come on the whole train. So if you ever want to cause a problem, (laughs) you know, just uncouple those black hoses between the cars. The coupler is hard to uncouple unless you get what? Does anybody know? Huh? Slack. Slack. You have to have some slack in the coupler to bust it apart. Now think about that. What is slack in a marriage? Well, (laughs) you know what slack is. Slack is adultery. Slack is pornography. Slack is separating from one another. I could give you a whole host of things that are slack. Until you get some slack in that cup work, good good luck trying to separate those two cars. Now, I don't want to go, I don't want to keep going down the railroad illustration, but there's no part of nature and creation that does not teach you God's truths. There's just none. Even railroads, all right? And so railroad cars couplers are made to couple, and when they couple, the two cars become a train. Without the coupling, the two cars are just what? Cars. Now then, weddings and marriage, when the husband and wife each take their vows, God couples the husband and wife. And he makes the two one. The man and his wife are now One person, the two don't become three or one, but one. Now, I have an illustration here, which I think is kind of humorous. You know, for a while, I don't know, you might still do it, but it was in vogue for everybody to have candles and a candle lighting ceremony, you know, and so there would be a little thing with three candles, and at the beginning of the ceremony, there would be two candles lit, and then at some point in the ceremony, the bride and groom would go over, and they'd pick up their respective candles, and they would light the center candle. The problem was that a lot of them would leave all three candles burning, And fortunately, we'd do it at the rehearsal, and so I'd see them leaving the three candles burning, but I didn't want the mother of the bride and the family, and I didn't want everybody getting all upset at me, you know? But I I needed to make sure that that the illustration illustrated the truth. And so I would, you know, try to get the the groom and the bride to come over, and I'd say, hey, listen, um, when you're married... What do the two become? Do they become three? (laughs) No. What do they become? One. Well, then why did you leave three candles burning? And sometimes that would be enough. You know, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. We'll blow them out. 
Okay. But sometimes, <laughs> now at this point, because I know many of you, I could actually name which of you men would have a woman who would ask this question. Because you're very small men, insecure, and you think that your job is to control your wife and give her the benefit of your superior intellect and principles. Oh my. <laughs> if the woman is marrying a man like that, you know what she says. Very quietly, she'd look at me and she'd say, but, but I don't lose my personhood, do I? Well, you know, in front of the family, you know, with the musicians, and and it's like, sweetie pie, uh, can we talk about this later, you know? (laughs) Because I know that if I say anything in response to the question, she's going to cry. Because she's already seen that she's going to go quietly into the dark night. But it's too late to back out. But she knows she's marrying a little man. Any of you women? (laughs) The coupling has been done. It's fixed at a point in time And what the man and his wife intended and vowed, they did not do. God did it. The words are telling, aren't they? Speak now or forever hold your peace. With an emphasis on the word forever. Until death us do part. With an emphasis on the word death. Note the absence of the word divorce. Jesus said, for this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and the two shall be one flesh. Wherefore, they are no more two, but one flesh. What therefore, you all know it, what therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. Much of the trouble we have with marriage today is a result of our twisted understanding of love and romance. Songs and movies have told us love and romance are soft things that the softer sex woman does naturally and best. Songs and movies and books have taught us that love and romance aren't work, but feelings. And warm and fuzzy feelings at that. And of course, we've been taught that weak women do feelings, not strong men like David and Jonathan. And so during courtship or while we're making our wedding plans together or on the second morning of our honeymoon or on the first morning of going off to work after returning from the honeymoon, things go poorly. He doesn't kiss me goodnight. She doesn't make me eggs. He doesn't take a shower. She has bad breath. She won't make a decision about what restaurant she wants to go to. Meanwhile, she's thinking to herself that if he loved her, he'd know what restaurant she wants to go to. You know you've married in romance when he just knows what's in your heart without even having to ask you. How wonderful then 
that marriage is irrevocable. Adam and Eve were joined together by God, and this day you are joined to your husband or wife in the same way. You two are one. There is no going back. The thing is over and done. You can't take it back. God himself did it. Start there. Now, when I was, Mary Lee and I really did fight over what she's going to say and over what I, I'm saying. And so you have the benefit of everything we could give it. All right. And this was one of the points where she had something helpful to say that I was happy to hear, which is, so what's the deal with divorce? You know, well, I want you to know, in fact, I'm going to read it to you. This is probably the only book on marriage that you'll ever read this in the acknowledgments. We have a page and a half, two pages of acknowledgments. And here's one of the acknowledgments. Also, we thank those Christian men and women in our congregations who are willing, were willing to divorce their spouses as a confession of faith. Oh, ho, ho. Rather than appeasing their godless spouses as they trampled on their vows, they confessed their faith in marriage as God ordained it and committed themselves and their children to the safety and nurture of the bride of Christ. That's not in the manuscript, but I'm reading it to you because I want you to know this is serious business. And we have had several cases where we have had both men and women in our church who have absolutely trampled on the covenant of marriage. And it is not honoring to God for a wife or a husband to allow their spouse to trample on their marriage vows. And so be very aware that this is serious business. You can fail. You can trample on the beauty of marriage as God created it. And it does not honor God, wife, it does not honor God, husband, for you to lie about it and cover it up. Okay? That's why the church has discipline. You go back and read the reformers at the time of the Reformation five centuries ago. And one of the things they did was they brought truth back to marriage and divorce. Whereas the Roman Catholic Church had something called what? You know? Annulments. And they're still used in a completely hypocritical way. Now then, God himself did it start there. G.K. Chesterton described this reality with a colorful comparison. He said this. He said, posting a letter, mailing a letter, and getting married are among the few things left that are entirely romantic. For to be entirely romantic, a thing must be irrevocable. (laughs) Isn't that helpful? All in! You know, if some of you here tonight are bitter against your wife or bitter against your husband, if I just say that to you, that's all you need to hear and you can leave. Be all in! Don't be diffident. Make an ass of yourself. Be all in. Don't hold anything back. 
That's romance. <laughs> you know? All right, all right, all right. So now think of the coupler on the boxcar. It'll crush whatever gets in the way of its joining the two and making them one. This is to the brakeman's danger, but the boxcar's relief. The coupling of boxcars and the coupling of vows of marriage between husband and wife are both irrevocable. The couplers of the boxcars in the moment, but the coupling of God making the two one for lifetime until death us do part. Yet it is because the coupling of marriage is irrevocable that it's terribly romantic and drop-dead gorgeous. It is for this reason also that marriage is such a relief. Oh man, I watch you guys date and court or do whatever you're doing. And I say to my wife all the time, you could not pay me to go back through those years. It is awful. Have you heard what Dietrich Bonhoeffer just had to say about love and marriage? He was in prison and his niece was getting married. He couldn't attend. He was in prison. But he could give them a sermon for the occasion. And this quote is from that sermon given from prison. Listen carefully. He writes, in your love, you see only the heaven of your own happiness. But in marriage, you are placed at a post of responsibility towards the world and mankind. Your love is your own private possession, but marriage is more than something personal. It is a status. It is an office. Just as it is the crown and not merely the will to rule that makes the king, so it is marriage and not merely your love for each other that joins you together in the sight of God and man. Love comes from you, but marriage comes from above from God. As high as God is above man, so higher the sanctity, the rights, and the promise of marriage above the sanctity, the rights, and the promise of love. It is not your love that sustains the marriage, but from now on the marriage that sustains the love. God makes your marriage indissoluble. What therefore God has joined together, let no man put asunder. God joins you together in marriage. It is his act. It's not yours. Do not confound your love for one another with God. God makes your marriage indissoluble and protects it from every danger that may threaten it from within and without. He wills to be the guarantor of its indissolubility. It is a blessed thing to know that no power on earth, no temptation, no human frailty can dissolve what God holds together. Indeed, anyone who knows that may say confidently what God has joined together can no man put asunder. Free from all anxiety, which is always a characteristic of love, you can now say to each other with complete and confident assurance, we can never lose each other now. By the will of God, we belong to each other till death. <laughs> I mean, that's so beautiful. You may not have ever thought about the insecurity of love, but it is the theme of Motown. Motown. 
It's the theme of country music. Neither happiness, love, nor romance make marriage. Rather, marriage makes happiness, love, and romance. And again, who makes marriage? What therefore God has joined together, let no man put asunder. God has joined you so that you no longer two but one. It may not feel that way tonight, but the fact is undeniable. For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death you do part according to God's command. Shall we then stop looking and examining and picking at the thing? (laughs) Trying to find out if it's healthy, compatible, sustainable. God has united the two of you into one and his act is incontrovertible. He did it himself with many witnesses present for the purpose of bearing testimony later when things get tough to the fact of the vows. (laughs) Like knit sweaters and scabs and new cars, picking at things can unravel them. When we were in seminary, my brother David bought a new Volkswagen Bug. And it was a big step for him. And so when he got the Bug home, he went out and he bought a compression gauge. And he opened up the back of the Bug and he started unscrewing the spark plugs. I don't know whether it was the first or second spark plug, but right away he ended up stripping the head taking the spark plug out, it got stuck. And he ended up not being able to put the spark plug back in and not being able to screw the vacuum gauge on. And so what did he have to do? He was so determined to find out whether or not he had a good marriage that he had to rebuild the engine. It was a great engine, but he picked at it. Now, Mary, we said, did you tell the rest of the story? So the rest of the story is he went ahead and got it rebuilt. And then one night he called me and he asked me to come over. And it was like five in the afternoon. He said, I can't get the engine back in. So it was on the floor. We weren't in any shop. And we spent 10 hours with that engine that far from making love to the transmission. (laughs) I mean, we were that far from seating it. (laughs) And we spent 10 hours. I I wasn't drinking alcohol. (laughs) If you receive my meaning, you know. 10 hours. It was one of the most difficult nights of my life. (laughs) But I was the older brother, and some of you know what that means. (laughs) When you first get married, maybe you thought somebody, something similar to what I thought when I woke up next to Mary Lay, still sleeping peacefully there next to me. And the words, the rest of my life, went through my head. 
Now, truthfully, that was nice. Indeed, it was a beautiful thought, although the weight of the thing did overwhelm me at the moment. Truth be told, the thought of the thing reoccurred many times in the coming years early in marriage. And there were times when that thought wasn't as nice and beautiful. Something I've noticed is that much of my impatience early in our marriage was due to my thinking, the rest of our lives. Maybe it was what Mary Lee did with the cap on our toothpaste. Maybe it was the taste of her chocolate chip cookies. Maybe it was overdrafts on our checking account. I use these examples because they're insignificant. They're placeholders for much more important things, right? Some of you are saying no. The checking account is serious business. <laughs> Anyhow, when something wasn't done right, or something right wasn't done, I'd think the rest of our lives. And I'd commence to pick at it. Then inevitably the fight would start. Truth is, the beginning and intensity of the fight would be directly correlated to the fear I had that I would have to live with this failure of Mary Lee for the rest of our lives. Who knew how long we would live? Depending upon our actuarial stats, maybe I'd be stuck with her failure for another 60 years. And that would be intolerable. May I tell you a secret? One of the things that makes marriage get better is that you stop thinking this stupid thought. And why? Well, because the rest of our lives is a shorter and shorter number. <laughs> I have to tell you that I love David and Joel. And right then, David went like this. And we've been married the longest. And so... It gets shorter. It gets shorter. Now, the rest of our lives becomes a shorter and shorter number, and this lessens the intensity of your drive to improve her or him. I once asked my father, my mother drove me crazy in some ways, you know. I once asked my dad, because he was, uh, well, if you've ever seen the movie Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, he was Steve Martin. You know, meticulous, urbane, cosmopolitan, polite, a gentleman. And my mother was... (laughs) And so one time I said to dad, (laughs) you know, I said to dad, I said, dad... I don't know, how do, you, how do you stand it with her losing her keys and purse constantly? <laughs> I mean, constantly. And my dad gave me this little look and he's like, and he said, well, you know, you get older and you just think, how much does it really matter? <laughs> And at that time, I did not understand that response. But I completely understand it now. And my wife understands it even more. Okay? There will come a point in your marriage when, by God's grace, the thought will begin to creep into your consciousness 
that you really don't want your wife and children's memory of you to be your nitpicking of the other half. This is not what you want your dear wife to think of when you die. This is not the memory you don't want to have perpetually before you when she dies. If she dies first. You want to talk about irrevocable? Death is irrevocable. And you must live today for that day. No, upon the death of your precious wife, you want her to remember that you loved her. And that you were... And not that you were a perfectionist who nitpicked her all the time and were never satisfied with her. And so stop already. She's your wife. He's your husband. God has made you both one. One. Follow him and submit to his will for you. This is the first thing about marriage. God has made the two of you one. Don't fear it. Don't tweak it. Don't pick at it. And don't resent it. Build on it. Build on it with nothing held back and no reservations. After all, you're not building on your husband or your wife. You're building on God who himself made you one. Now then, how do you do it? How do you build on the oneness that God has made the two of you? Number two, let us examine the fundamental truth of marriage that God made woman for man. Now listen, if you hear this and immediately you jump to authority you're in danger of missing the fundamental truth. Authority is not the fundamental truth. Purpose and orientation are the fundamental truth. We're talking sexual orientation here. Come on, laugh. That's funny. I mean, why should the devil have all the good phrases, you know? God created woman prior to the fall and therefore prior to sin and rebellion. And so woman being created for man and not man for woman is not something that isn't as good as it could have been if the fall hadn't occurred and sin hadn't entered the world. This is the sort of thinking characteristic of the natural man or the worldling. Being without God and without God's word in the world, he thinks that in a better world, man would exist just as much for woman as woman would exist for man. Man would seek to please the woman just as much as woman would seek to please the man. Man would gaze down into the face of woman just as much as woman would gaze up into the face of man. He believes he is working toward a utopia in which equality will finally be victorious over difference. This utopia he is hard at work towards is life devoid of distinction and differences. It's only an always sameness. But stop and think for a moment, what an awful world that is. God never made equality to squelch distinctions, particularly the distinctions he himself has made and put at the center of man's life from the very beginning. In the state of perfection, in the Garden of Eden, prior to the fall, prior to sin. It was there in the state of perfection with man and woman equally created, bearing the image of God, that God made woman for man. Woman being created for man was not some concession God made to Adam's rebellion and Eve's deception by the serpent. 
woman being created for man is not simply the best God can do given what he has to work with in this sinful world. No, but rather, you, you want to know something funny? <laughs> My wife has been chilled out during the first one. But ever since I started this one, her foot is bouncing up and down. <laughs> and so I'm uptight because she's uptight. Okay, I'll keep going. Can I keep going, please? <laughs> is that okay? It's okay, right? No, go ahead, bounce. I mean, it lets me know I'm on thin ice, you know? <laughs> okay, all right, we all back? Okay, here we go. All right, I've watched her foot, her face countless times. <laughs> and I pity her for having to listen to me. I really do. All right, you willing? Okay, all right, here we go. Woman being created for man is not simply the best God can do given what he has to work with in this sinful world. No, but rather, woman being created for man is perfection itself. It is the best of all possible worlds. It is God's plan, and therefore it's good. So dive into it and enjoy it. I mean, I know, I sound like a lunatic. I have to write this stuff. And I know what you're going to be thinking. The guys are, I won't use the words. Both of you dive into it and enjoy it, both husband and wife. How can you, woman, dive into and enjoy being oriented toward man? How can you, wife, dive into and enjoy being oriented toward your husband? Also, oppositely, how can you, man, dive into and enjoy woman being oriented toward man? And how can you, husband, dive into and enjoy your wife being oriented toward you, her husband? Now, listen, I could talk at great length about this. The, the, the secret is that it is actually hard for man to even hear this, let alone accept it. You women don't think that's true, but I guarantee you it's true. Like it or not, this is the way things are, and they've been this way from the very beginning, from the Garden of Eden, from the state of perfection. Here's a Bible passage that opens up the beauty of woman being created for man. 1 Corinthians 11, 7 to 9. For man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For, indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Everything in creation has a first orientation toward God. We see this as the birds return, and springtime begins to spring. All nature sings and round us rings the wonders of his love. We see this in the worship of God's people and our singing and praying. Ocean and submission to his word. Children of the heavenly father, safely in his bosom gather. Nestling bird nor star in heaven, such a refuge e'er was given. 
But under creation's orientation to God, our creator, are a whole host of orientations he also has created. What we are discussing tonight is woman's orientation, her sexual orientation toward man. And in this scripture passage, we read the Holy Spirit's explanation of that orientation. Man is the image and glory of God, the woman is the glory of man. Man does not originate or come from woman, the woman from the man. Man was not created for the woman's sake, the woman for the man's sake. Now let's stop here for a moment and deal with a common objection. Quite recently, in fact, if we look at it historically, most of the church has decided to deny these basic truths. One of the ways we deny it is by changing the words the Holy Spirit inspired, man and woman, to husband and wife. I'm not saying Bible publishers and their translators have changed these words in 1 Corinthians 11 yet. What I'm saying instead is that the sermons and teaching and books and podcasts all limit the application of these truths to marriage alone. And even then, not all marriages, only Christian marriages. It's our attempt to pull in our horns and present a peaceful face to worldlings who hate these truths. Don't worry, that's just something for us Christians, we say, eager to present our best face to rebels who hate God's distinctions. But looking at what scripture says, once again, we see God doesn't say the wife is the glory of the husband but rather the woman is the glory of the man. We see that God doesn't say the wife comes from the husband, but that the woman comes from the man. We see that God doesn't say the wife was created for the husband, but that the woman was created for the man. You recognize the difference between each of these statements, right? This is how God made woman. She is oriented to the man for whom she is made. This is true of every woman, regardless of her faith or lack of it, regardless of her marriage or lack of it, regardless of her size or strength or intelligence or family of origin or language or skin color or attitude. And so today, here and now, in all the landmark center and Indy and Indiana and North America, indeed worldwide, there is not a single woman alive who is not made by God for man. You're the one that paid to come. <laughs> and listen. Across 2,000 years of church history, you will not find one orthodox Christian pastor, writer, I don't care any of them, that would not be bored to tears by what I just said. That's how decadent we are. I am not the weird one. As with all of God's distinctions created in the Garden of Eden before the fall, we may choose to deny them, we may fight them, we may beat our heads against them, we may, may do our best to kill them and gag any man who speaks of them. But as we rebel against this precious truth established by God, we must remember it's not social conventions and Christian values and Jewish Christian tradition we're fighting against. When we fight against and try to deny woman being created for man, it is God our creator we fight against. 
And anyone want to guess who wins? It's so important that we take our eyes off the worldlings, which very often means taking our eyes off our sisters and parents and aunts and uncles. You remember Jesus warned his children that a man's enemies will be the members of his household, adding, he who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me, Matthew 10. We must face the fact that concerning all things sexual, the world has gone mad. And sadly, very often, our own loved ones go the way of the world. And then we're forced to choose. Between our loved ones and God, between fearing man and fearing God, sometimes even between our wife or our husband and God. Mary Lee and I are not going to lie to you. And so, yes, you have to decide if you want to follow Jesus or not, particularly in this matter of woman being created for man. Are you, woman, willing to appear to your sister-in-law to be completely pathetic? Are you, woman, willing to show your sister-in-law that you love the calling God has given you as woman and that it is your sincere and very public desire to embrace that divine sexual orientation of pleasing your husband? (laughs) Or are you ashamed and do you keep your feminine sexual orientation under wraps at holidays and family reunions and also on Facebook discussions? It may even be that you're married to a man who himself is embarrassed by God's distinction between man and woman. It may be that he feels your divinely feminine sexual orientation is limiting and cloying or just plain embarrassing. And so he asks you, his wife, to stop being oriented towards him or at least to keep it under wraps, to reserve it for the privacy of your own home where no one else will see or hear it. If this is your man of the house, Mary Lee and I warn you, speaking in behalf of God, your father, not to join your husband in this faithlessness. You be a woman and make no apologies at all for it to your husband, children, parents, or sister-in-law. Why allow the pagans to rob you of your beauty? Why allow all the worldlings to squelch your femininity? Now, at this point, it's likely many are asking themselves what living as a woman created for man looks like practically. How would a woman live out this truth day by day? We don't have time to go into it much, but a couple thoughts might help. First, think about other distinctions that demonstrate this same truth and learn from them. Take, for instance, the distinction between the boss and his workers. Note that word, his. Good workers seek to please their boss, whereas bad workers seek to please their co-workers or themselves. At Proviso Yard, I worked the swing shift from 3 to 11. It was a union shop, and so the guys with seniority worked the first shift. The guys with a little less worked the night shift, and the newbies all worked the swing shift, you know? And so we worked. We liked each other. We loved our foreman. I mean, it, it, oh, it was a wonderful job. And you could die any night. I mean, literally. And that made it exciting, you know? <laughs> I think it's why guys go into the Marines, you know? 
So anyhow, after a month or two of working there, all of a sudden I showed up one night and I found out that the first shift had sent a message to the third shift that we were making them look bad. That our production and our work was so good that they looked like what they were. (laughs) And so they ordered us to slow down. And that was my introduction to unions. Okay. Do you carry yourself and speak and act and cook and laugh looking for the approval of your husband or is that too demeaning to you? And do you instead speak and act and cook and cry for the approval of your mother or sister worse of all for your own approval? There are all kinds of distinctions and relationships through which we can observe the sort of orientation that seeks to please another. Each of these distinctions testifies to this relationship of woman toward man that is the first distinction between men created by God. Look at them, observe them, learn from them. Until recently, all the art of the world testified to the beauty of woman. Being created for man. Why let this filthy day rob us of the pleasure God gives those women and men who love and live out this first distinction? Second, if you want to learn to confess your womanhood vis-a-vis your husband's manhood, a good starting place is observing, learning, and delighting and giving him his preferences. Maybe I can put it this way. Principles are heavy, but preferences are light. Observing, learning, and giving your husband his preferences is maybe more of an indication and fulfillment of your womanhood than submitting to his principles. Do you make your chocolate chip cookies with Crisco or butter? Do you buy his favorite cereal and make sure it's always there when he wants it? His favorite vegetable. He may like spinach. He may like Brussels sprouts. I like lima beans. Do you go to bed when he goes to bed? Or do you go to bed when you feel like it? Do you put salt and pepper on the table even though your mother didn't? Do you try to learn a little about the sports he likes to watch? Do you dress to please him or do you dress to please your girlfriends? Do you do your hair the way he likes it or do you do your hair so it's easy to take care of? Remember, it's not demeaning to any woman to live as God made her, the glory of man. Third, let us examine the fundamental truth of marriage that God saw it was not good for the man to be alone. There is an error common across church history concerning the purposes of marriage. Take, for instance, this from the Gospel Coalition website. Quote, marriage is created that we may serve God through children, through 
fruitful intimacy and through properly ordered sexual relations. Unquote. And then also this from Thomas Cranmer's liturgy for wedding ceremonies found in the 1549 prayer book. Quote, duly considering the causes for the which matrimony was ordained, one cause was the procreation of children to be brought up in the fear and m- nurture of the Lord and praise of God. Secondly, it was ordained for a remedy against sin and to avoid fornication that such persons as be married might live chastely in matrimony and keep themselves undefiled members of Christ's body. Thirdly, for the mutual society help and comfort that the one ought to have in another, both in prosperity and adversity. Now, what is notable is neither the Gospel Coalition nor the 1549 Anglican Prayer Book lists faithful intimacy or mutual help and comfort as the first purpose of marriage. Rather, both list as the first purpose of marriage, the procreation of children. Now, what about the Westminster Standards? How does the Westminster Confession list these three purposes? They say, quote, marriage was a stat ordained for the mutual help of husband and wife, for the increase of mankind with a legitimate issue, and of the church with a holy seat, and for preventing of uncleanness. The Westminster Confession gets it right. The first purpose of marriage is mutual society, help, and comfort. To say it again, the first purpose of marriage is intimacy, friendship, and companionship. The first purpose. The first purpose of marriage is to heal the man's aloneness. If you've been watching the homosexualists co-opt evangelical celebrities and create schism within their formerly evangelical denominations the past few years, you've noticed their central project is promoting homosexual intimacy, which they claim stops just short of homosexual copulation. They're all telling of the glories of something they liltingly refer to as, quote, spiritual friendship. These soft men, so popular in the church today, tell us they have committed themselves to each other for life. They live in the same house. They have the same bank account. They're the beneficiary of each other's life insurance policy. They're each other's best friend. They share an adopted child. They are completely and entirely husband and wife, with only one exception. They say they don't violate the plumbing. Now, why bring this up? Mary Lee didn't want me to. You'll be happy to know. Because it's such a vivid testimony to the simple fact stated by God upon seeing Adam among the plants and animals in the Garden of Eden prior to the fall. At that time, everything was still in the state of perfection. Yet God himself observed it is not good for the man to be alone. It wasn't good for the man to be alone then. It's still not good for the man to be alone now. This spiritual friendship twistedness can't help but testify to the truth that woman was made for a man to heal his aloneness through feminine companionship, intimacy, friendship, and love. Oh, my goodness. To see... To use the language of God recorded in his word, man required and still requires a suitable helper. In the Garden of Eden, the state of perfection, it was not good for man to be alone. 
And so what should be done about it? Well, God created woman for man. How perfect, how sweet, how tender, how intimate, how loving, how sexy, and how beautiful. Still today, it is not good for the man to be alone, so God creates woman. Now, what will man do with this woman God has created for him? Will he love her? Will he share with her his deepest fears and insecurities? Will he share with her his tenderest sentiments? Will he confess to her his doubts and sins? Will he ask her to pray for him? Will he accept the children she presents him? Will he love those children as she loves them? Will he be intimate with her? All of which are to say, will he love her? Men, can we please admit we need woman? Can we acknowledge that we are lost without her? Can we lower ourselves to confess our love for her? That we can't live without her. Can we lower ourselves to confess this woman created by God does in fact heal our aloneness? Why should this be humiliating? Imagine the relief she would feel if you went back to your hotel room tonight and as you undressed, you said to her, I admit it, I need you. (laughs) And then wonder of wonders, she herself lowers herself and responds, I'm here for you, lover. I'm here for you. Now, honestly, that's marriage as God made it. Lower yourself and admit it. Lower yourself and say it out loud, alone with her, and yet not alone, but together, loving, intimate, one. By the way, tomorrow, when I talk to the men, I'm going to talk more about this issue. And that's what I want you to read the chapter of the book to your wife. Mary Lee is upset that I'm going to give it just to the men. She wants the women to hear it. But that's what we're going to talk about tomorrow, is being a companion to your companion. How do you do it? All right. Fourth and finally, let us examine the fundamental truth of marriage that God made children his blessing to man and wife. For a couple months, while they were staying in Bloomington, we had a mainline denominational couple attending our church for worship each Sunday. They'd recently had a baby boy, their first child, and watching them come and go each Sunday, never partaking in any of the fellowship of the church, I was grieved for the two of them out there in the madness all alone. Seeing their love for their child, one day as they stopped to greet me on their way out the door, I looked at them and I said I wondered if they wouldn't be helped by my doing with them what I did with the other first-time parents of our church. I explained that I met with the mom and dad without their child. Now, I knew that would be a hurdle from them since I could tell they were the usual first-time overprotective parents. And I would go through the basics of discipline and family devotions. I could tell my offer was completely foreign to their notions of pastoral relations formed by the mainline denominational wasteland. But not being rude, they said, well, yes, we'd like that. (laughs) A week or two later, we got together. They sat together on the couch in my office, and after the usual small talk, we began our session with my saying that the purpose of their son was to make his mother happy. 
I wanted to get the proper orientation established at the very beginning. The purpose of woman is to help man, and the purpose of children is to make their mother happy. It was a little bit shocking, and yet I was pleased when the mother immediately responded by asking with some considerable skepticism in her posture and tone of voice, where does it say that in the Bible? (laughs) My immediate thought was, huh? I thought that was obvious. You know, I have no idea where it says it in the Bible. (laughs) Brains have to do their work quickly, sometimes in counseling, and my brain didn't let me down at that moment. Almost without missing a beat, I responded, well, you see, the entire book of Proverbs says it. Alex, you would have been proud of me. (laughs) Sadly, I don't think she was convinced. But may I try to convince you? Let's take a brief look at the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 6, 20 to 22. My son, observe the commandment of your father and do not forsake the teaching of your mother. Bind them continually on your heart. Tie them around your neck. When you walk about, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk to you. Proverbs 10, 1. A wise son makes a father glad, but a foolish son is a grief to his mother. Proverbs 15, 20. A wise son makes a father glad, but a foolish mom, man despises his mother. Proverbs 19.26, he who assaults his father and drives his mother away is a shameful and a disgraceful son. Proverbs 20.20, he who curses his father or his mother, his lamp will go out in time of darkness. Proverbs 23, verses 22 to 25, listen to your father who begot you and do not despise your mother when she is old. Buy truth and do not sell it. Get wisdom and instruction and understanding. The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice and he who sires a wise son will be glad in him. Let your father and your mother be glad and let her rejoice who gave birth to you. Proverbs 29:15. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. Proverbs 30, 11 and 12, there is a kind of mom, a man, who curses his father and does not bless his mother. There is a kind who is pure in his own eyes, yet he is not washed from his filthiness. And then Proverbs 30, verse 1, the eye that mocks a father and scorns a mother, the ravens of the valley will pick it out and the young eagles will eat it. Now, these are just the passages of Proverbs that mention the mother explicitly, but really the teaching and instruction and warnings and admonishments and promises of Proverbs come from the mouth of wisdom. And we do well to note carefully that wisdom is a her and a she. 
Proverbs 3, beginning with verse 13. How blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding, for her profit is better than the profit of silver, and her gain better than fine gold. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire compares with her. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her, and happy are all who hurled her fast. Why is wisdom a she and not a he? There are many arguments about this. The feminists who claim to be Christians say this woman, wisdom, or Sophia in Greek, is personified as a woman because of the hidden feminine deity those with the proper Urim and Thummim can find in ancient Canaan as well as ancient Hebrew history. Now, I'm being a little bit, I'm making reference to Joseph Smith there, okay, right, okay. They make this woman, Sophia, into a Hebrew goddess and then call us to worship her as an act of repentance for our dismissiveness toward women. But really, the woman wisdom who speaks all through Proverbs also reminds us of our mothers who from their breast and knee instructed us in the way we should live and walk and love. Will we listen to her? Will we remember and follow wisdom's instruction? If so, we will be blessed by God with happiness and fruitfulness, and we will make our mother happy. This is a central theme of Proverbs, not causing our mother shame, but rather making her proud and happy and blessing her. Now, there's another point, right? Wise children bless their mother, and that's right and good because God giving their mother fruit in her womb was from the beginning his blessing to her. We all know that, right? That children are a blessing from the Lord, and happy is the man whose quiver is full of them. Psalm 127, a song of a sense of Solomon, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It's vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. Behold, children are a blessing from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. Your children are God's blessing to you. Unequivocally. I don't care if they're adopted. I don't care if they're natural children. Unequivocally, they're God's blessing to you. And God gives them to you to make you happy. Come on. Both dad and mom. But if mama ain't happy... Ain't nobody happy. Do you ever think you will never be happy? Do you ever listen to Satan's wicked lie that you are beyond God's blessing of happiness? Don't listen to him. Don't you believe him. 
Satan is a liar and the father of lies. When he lies, scripture tells us he's using his native tongue. And one of the most frequent lies he tells Christians is accuse them of being beyond the grace and the power and the blessing of God. He's the accuser of the brethren and sistren. And one of his most powerful accusations is to tell you that you may not repent because you've repented too, too often. And you have run out of God's mercy and grace and forgiveness. And certainly out of your husband or wife's mercy and grace and forgiveness. And so just get used to misery. Because it's all you can expect for the simple reason that at this point in your life, it's all you deserve. (laughs) He tells you that you have ruined everything and any chance of a happy marriage and happy children and happy grandchildren is long gone. Well, this was me when I was a young man. You know, you you look at me and I have a navy blue blazer on, right? Bye, Daniel. And you know, there's people here and there's a book and... And you think that's who he is. It's not who I am. It's who God's made me. You have no clue who Mary Lee and I were. How many of you listen to Mary Lee's podcast? If you haven't listened to it, listen to it. It will be eye-opening. You'll be gobsmacked. And so Mary Lee and I had been going together. I was out in California. I was building the Wycliffe Bible Translators new headquarters in Huntington Beach on Beach Boulevard. I had that had been going on for weeks. So all day I would have a a fever of 102. And I'd have to work. I was a hod carrier working for the cement contractor. And at night I lived in this little rat fink, like pickup truck camper sitting on the dirt. And so I never left the job, never. Mary Lee had just broken up with me. And she was in Santa Barbara with handsome men who were rich. Listen, I'm not kidding you. And I had moved to California to be near her when she went to college. And then she came out and broke up with me. And so there I am, Huntington Beach, (laughs) sick day after day. The low point, some people would call it the nadir was I didn't have any money to go to a doctor, so I went to the free clinic. Well, at the free clinic in Huntington Beach, it's like surfer dudes and surfer chicks. And they gave me pills, and it killed all the bacteria in my mouth so that I could not eat anything except basically Jell-O because my mouth was filled with sores, and it just, I couldn't eat. And so this was my life, and it was, I fully deserve that life, trust me. Okay, don't pity me. And then I finally went back to this free clinic, and I said to the dude, hey, it's not getting better. Do you have anything else? And he said, yeah, take off your pants and, and lie on the gurney and behind the curtains there. So I go in, and I t- take off my pants, And I lie down, butt sticking up in the air, naked butt sticking up in the air. 
And this dude has all these surfer chicks talking and flirting with him. You know, he's young, he's good looking, you know. And he takes the curtain and he just pulls it open. And they're like, from me to you. There's all these women, you know, and him, and me, and flagrant. I know, it's funny, but it wasn't at the time, (laughs) you know, but this was me, you know, so he shot me in the you know what, and I went back to my room that night, and I just wanted to die, I just wanted to die, I just wanted to die, the woman I had loved for six years was done with me, I had no money. I never left the job site. I had no friends. And I realized that night, and some of you have heard this story before, I realized that night I had three choices. One choice was to kill myself. One choice was to spend the rest of my life being Donald Trump. I was good looking, I was intelligent. I knew I could pull it off. I mean, I didn't think Don Trump, but you know who Don Trump is, so you know what I'm talking about, you know. He's got a babe, you know. He's got a mouth. The third option was to repent. To repent of my idolatry of Mary Lee. Well, (laughs) that was almost worse than death. Because I... I had loved her from the beginning. As soon as we had our first date, I sent her roses with a card that said, someday. And I was how old? 16. And how old were you? She was 14, I was 16. I was (laughs) single-minded. But repentance meant confessing my idolatry to God. Well, you'll be happy to know that I didn't have the courage to kill myself. I mean, I just looked at it and I thought, I can't do that. (laughs) You know, this is a hill too high. (laughs) You know, well, then it was, and I despised people like Trump. I mean, I had been around them my whole life. I knew all these dudes who were just complete blank, blank, blanks. They were so filled with themselves and good looking and, you know, they were just like, oh, I couldn't stand them. And so that was out. Well, that left repentance. (laughs) And this is generally, I think, how the Holy Spirit brings us to repentance. It's the last option. (laughs) Now listen to me. And so I repented. I repented. I repented. I got down on my knees. And I said to God, God, you gave me godly parents and a godly education. And you gave it to Mary Lee too. And we've done nothing but trash all your good gifts to us. And I have no excuse. None. None. But if you'll take me, I'll come. It was that simple. 
Well, then I did what St. Augustine also did. It's my only justification, which is I took my Bible and randomly opened it. Okay? And this is where it opened. Are you ready for this? A song of ascents. How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. When you shall eat of the fruit of your hands, you will be happy and it will be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine. Within your house, your children like olive plants around your table. Behold, for thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion, and may you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Indeed, may you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. There was not any question in my mind that God had ordained me to read that as a specific promise in detail from him. It was absolutely incomprehensible how God could do any of that for me. You understand. But look at me. Has he kept his word to me? Has he? It's unbelievable. And of course, it's all due to my superior intelligence and self-discipline and, and godly heritage and the happy marriage my parents had and the happy marriage her parents had and the fact that we know how to dress and not make asses of ourselves. Recognize it. We have superior breeding. <laughs> now listen, you have to understand, that's not true. To whom much is given, much shall be required. If you trash what God has given you, you can expect his judgment. I had every reason for God to find fault with me. And he didn't. Now, a lot of things happened after that. I had to give Mary Lee up. And that was unbelievably difficult and painful. I'm not going to tell you the rest of the story, but I'm going to tell you, Satan is a liar. I don't care what has happened to you in your childhood. I don't care who you're married to. Do you believe God or do you not? Do you believe God? The just shall live by faith. And the very definition of faith is it seems impossible. (laughs) And yet I'm standing in front of you and I've got 30 children's children that, that I'm regularly seeing and getting hugs from now. And it's not because I did anything right, except I would not stop coming to God. That's it. Act in faith. God made children his blessing to man and wife. And he gives children to you as a blessing. And I'm going to say this to you. As Mary Lee and I prepared and prayed and thought and cogitated on and ruminated about and stewed over what we were going to say to you, 
One thing came into our minds that we became convinced very quickly needed to be said. The reason the compilation of basic wisdom, which is the book of Proverbs, so repeatedly speaks of children being a blessing or a curse, is that nothing is so unifying or divisive in marriage as children. If you have been blessed with children, whether naturally or by adoption, the happiness and well-being of your marriage will never escape the condition of your children. If your children are wise and obedient, respectful, and treasure your admonitions and discipline, treasure. Note I did not say put up with and roll their eyes over. But treasure your admonition and discipline. You will have a happy marriage. You will have a happy young and middle-aged and old marriage. You will be happy young bride with toddler, a happy little bit older bride with elementary school children, happy middle-aged mother of teen, happy mother of the bride, happy new grandmother, happy experienced grandmother, happy older grandmother anticipating the birth of her first great-grandson or granddaughter. And your, de- your death will be happy. Knowing the church of Jesus Christ has a godly seed, you and yours have propagated to the glory of God, who are ready, that godly seed, to do it all over again in the fear and the glory of God. You got that. Your goal is to die well. Knowing you will not be missed. (laughs) Because you have propagated a godly seed And that God we seed has taken over the work of the kingdom of God from you. Is this what you want? Then one simple and final command, propagate a God we seed. Not an evil seed. Not a rebellious seed, not a foolish seed, not an ungrateful seed, not a seed that never feared your husband and thus has no fear of God. No, but rather a godly seed. It's hard work, so do it knowing God has blessed you with children to assure your happiness and contentment, not to assure your misery, suffering, and shame. Now then, to repeat our four points, dropping back and taking a look at the big picture, there are marital crises in your relationships right now, and you want a solution, but if you don't have the foundations fixed in your brains, what marriage itself is and why God made it that way, you'll not fix your marriage. You'll just switch from this problem to that one. You'll just exchange problems one for another. Without keeping God's design firmly in mind, what we consider to be the solution that we need to hear today will harm other things and multiply our marital problems. Here then are the four foundations of marriage as God made it himself. It is not romance or love, but God himself who makes the two one. God made woman for man. God created woman for man to heal his aloneness. God made children to be his blessing to man and wife. Okay? Let's pray. Dear Jesus, 
Thank you for letting us be weak and humble with each other. Thank you for pulling us up out of the pit that we had dug for ourselves. Thank you for giving us faith to be here tonight. Thank you for our children. Thank you for our wives, our husbands. Thank you for the good souls who serve us here in this uh, venue. Thank you for safety and driving. Thank you for food. Thank you for drink. Jesus, we are all pieces of work, but we cling to your promises and we will not be ashamed of your truth. Give us a good night. May our love be sweet. And we pray tomorrow that you will have more for us to feed us and that we will not resent you and what you say to us, but we'll embrace it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.